1: And welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Paige Bowers about her new book, The General's Niece, The Little-Known de Gaulle Who Fought to Free Occupied France. Paige, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, Mark.
1: Or happy to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Uh, well, I've had a long career as a freelance journalist based in the Atlanta area, where I wrote a variety of stories for publications such as Time and The New York Times, people, different things like that, and I guess about seven years, eight years ago now, we took a family trip to France. Um, My husband had a business conference there, and he decided to take me and my daughter, who was then four, along with us, so we went on this trip. I'd always been a huge Francophile, and there was something about reconnecting with Paris and seeing it through my daughter's eyes, that got me thinking about going back to graduate school, you know, when I had a mortgage and a husband and a child and other responsibilities. Perfect time. Um, yeah, perfect time. <laughs> Very practical, especially in a down economy. So um, <laughs> when we got back to Atlanta, uh, I started talking about, you know, maybe what I really want to do is pursue this long-held passion I've had for French history and focus on telling some of these great stories um, in books. And my husband said, well, you know, you're a journalist. You can just do what you do as a journalist and do this. And I said, you know, I think I need to go back to school. I need to get that background. I need to spend that time reading and thinking and kind of really grounding myself in this. And I guess that's what you would call the world's nerdiest midlife crisis. When people get uh, convertibles, I go back and I read more than a 1,000 pages a week. That's, you know, how I do it. But everybody, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Mm-hmm. So we moved uh, from Atlanta back to my native Louisiana. I pursued, pursued a master's degree in um, modern European history, got it. And um, went about, you know, I started teaching some at LSU, continued to freelance, and eventually stumbled upon this story um, that became The General's Meat.
1: How, how, how was it that you came across this story?
0: Well, I was preparing to teach a class uh, at LSU. And uh, I got up one morning, I was preparing, and I came across this um, news story that said uh, General de Gaulle's niece, Jean Villes, would be interred in the Panthéon, uh, along with three other resistors from World War II. And um, the Panthéon, for those who don't know, is this great old French mausoleum that houses the remains of... Some amazing French historical figures like Voltaire. So if you're going to be in the Pantheon, you are somebody, let's say. And so I'm I'm ashamed to admit, let me go back a little in time, that when I was in graduate school, my advisor asked me, you know, he said, you really need to read General de Gaulle's war memoirs. I said, okay. And when you're reading this volume of stuff in graduate school, you tend to read in what I like to call desperation, just to get through the volume of stuff, to get the idea, to understand the arguments, and so forth. And so uh, when I opened this book, I kind of skimmed the dedication page, which dedicated the book to his niece, jean and I didn't, in my desperation, I did not give a lot of thought then to who she was and why the book might have been dedicated to her, which is a sad, sad commentary both on myself at that time and on uh, women's history. So a couple of years later, when I finally got my master's degree uh, and I came across this, you know, some of those little bells in my head started ringing. And I said, you know what? I want to find out who she is, a little bit more about who she is and what she was about and um, why this great general and this, you know, one of France's, most popular, most significant his, uh, historical and political figures would dedicate his board memoirs to her. And that's, um, that's what kind of got me along the path toward this book.
1: I was thinking as I read it uh, about how interesting of a book it is, and talking with you now, it, it I can really see how it, it embodies both of those aspects of your approach, that you have a book that is uh, grounded in the literature about the French Resistance. You, uh, mm-hmm. you reference a lot of books, but at the same time, there's also that uh, journalistic element where you went and you collect, you conducted interviews with mm-hmm. some of the uh, women who fought in the resistance, and that book really, you know, melds the two very nicely.
0: You know what? Thank you, because that's exactly what I was hoping to do. Um, I wanted to do this book that would put people off with a ton of fitness. but it was this accessible, journalistic, you know, it was just something like, think of a great narrative nonfiction, anything Eric Larson writes, you know, it's a beautiful historical story or a true prime narrative or whatever, but it's this fusion of research that you can do, but also if you can get it, if you're fortunate enough. So it took these two passions that I've had. I love journalism and still believe in it and my passion for history. And I, I like to think of the book as this little jewel box that resulted. You know, I, I feel like it, that's what happened. I was
1: wondering if you could start us off about telling us a little bit about jean Jean-Vier de Gaulle and her family. I mean, what was her, okay. she, she mentioned that she was uh, Charles de Gaulle's <laughs> niece. Uh, was she uh, uh, was it be, through her, uh, uh, through his older brother, through his younger brother? What, what exactly was the familial
0: relationship? Charles de Gaulle was the third of five children. His oldest brother, or the oldest child in that family, Xavier de Gaulle, is jean Vieux's father. And what's interesting is that Xavier, back before anyone in the de Gaulle family knew that Charles would become what he did. Xavier was the one that was about to have the most promise. He was bright. He was, you know, he was studious. He was, you know, responsible. He was this model first child. And Charles was kind of a troublemaker before he found this direction and thought, I want to get into the military. I want to focus my passions in history and so forth. Xavier he was trained to be a civil engineer, and um, he his background. He, he worked uh, as an engineer in mines, French mines. So, when he and his wife first got married, um, they moved to a little town that's known for, you know, their onions. That's I mean, this is you know the the type of town it is. It's a little mountain town known for its onions, and there was a there was a mine there that he managed, and that's where. Javier was born a couple of years later, like in her early youth, um, Xavier was recruited to manage a mine um, in a league of nations controlled territory in Germany. Um, just right on the French border in the Saarland. And the reason why uh, the league of nations was managing this territory was because um, at the end of World War I, uh the Germans flooded some very important French mines uh, during the fighting. So his restitution under the Versailles Treaty. They, you know, turned these mines over to be, or this, this territory over to be managed by the League of Nations, and they put Xavier de Gaulle in charge of the mines, which were, you know, the employees were German. So that was still kind of tense because, you know, the Germans didn't want the French coming in and telling them what to do. They didn't appreciate, you know, uh, the the Versailles treaty. And so here is this man with a growing young family. Uh who's going to work every day, very tense. Um and, and, and because of the tensions he's he's bringing a gun to work just to protect himself. So tragedy strikes his family when Jean de Gaulle is five. Her mother was pregnant with her fourth child, and the child died in utero. And so they were going to operate, um, but there were complications. And Germaine de Gaulle died on the operating table. And what happened next, it plunged Xavier de Gaulle into this profound depression, this unbelievable grief. You know, this was the love of his life. And he couldn't bear to be without her. So the family stepped in to kind of fill this void and help. But here's this young girl, not quite five years old, who decides, I need to step up and help my dad. I need to fill the void left by my mother. I need to become a mother figure to my siblings you know, to the point where she made sure they did their homework. And if they didn't, you know, she'd smack them on the hand with a comb or hit them upside the head with, you know, a Latin dictionary. Um, She became old quickly. She became an adult quickly. And um, that kind of shaped, that really shaped the woman she would become in life. This person with an idea. You know, all the galls were raised love history, to debate current events, to believe in this certain idea of France and to embrace family and a strong Catholic faith. But what happened with jean de Gaulle beyond that was she always had this sense of duty about how, you know, if she saw a problem, you know, she tried to figure out what she could do to step in and fix it. And that would become a pattern in her life.
1: That's, uh, when you're describing how uh, uh, effective she was and how uh, she grew up very quickly, Mm -hmm. I I was thinking also about how you uh, referenced the times in which, this was a time when women didn't even have the vote in France, (laughs) and yet... You know, even before the war, she emerges as this very precocious figure. She goes to yeah. to, to university. She goes to the Sorbonne. She's she's very, she's already a, a becoming a very formidable person. And then uh, the war takes place. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit about uh, how she initially. Uh, how she and, and her family overall responds to war, especially when they're doing their part for the war, and at the same time, her uncle mm-hmm. is rapidly becoming this figure of national renown.
0: Well, she wasn't, she wasn't at the Sorbonne when, war, when France fell. The Sorbonne would come later when she decided to move from Brittany, where her family was, to Paris, where she could make more of an impact in the resistance. She was very studious and very determined. And if she didn't get good grades, she would take it out on herself and everyone else around her. Through this period, you know, when they were in Germany, General de Gaulle, he wasn't general yet. He was stationed nearby. And during this period, this is when she got to know her uncle very well or better. And she really... First, she looked to him as any girl might look to an uncle. You know, he's your uncle. You get to know his family. You get to spend time with him, maybe have him tell you silly jokes or what have you. But in time, the older that she got, she and her uncle became very close, very linked. And it was due in part to this situation that I referenced with her mother, her mother passing away. Um, One of the things, Genevieve, noticed as she got older is that You know, her father was a very fragile man. And she felt that there were things that, you know, she loved him very much, but there were things that she simply could not talk to him about because he was so fragile. And so she turned to her uncle. And they became very close. And it was like, you know, she she was a daughter figure to him. She was someone who, um, you know, he saw a bit of himself in because she was bright and she was bookish and she cared about history the way she did. He did, and she cared about words the way he did, too. So eventually what happens is the family um, is moving back to France, um, up into Brittany, um, right when Hitler's starting to rise and become more prominent in Germany. Um, When the war breaks out, because of the life she has led and the way she's been raised, and her refusal to believe that France would give up the fight, she heard uh, Marcia Salit Pétain tell the nation on June 17th, 1940, to lay down its arms, to, you know, to to give in, and she couldn't accept it. You know, she could not accept that this would happen to this country, that. You know, she learned about through her father's eyes and her uncle's eyes. You know, she wouldn't accept that they would bow down in defeat, and so she resolved to do something about it. She didn't immediately get into the resistance. A lot, of, you know, the resistance was something that it was kind of this organic, viral movement almost. Not a lot of people heard General de Gaulle speak uh, the next day, June eighteenth, nineteen forty, when he says, "You know, keep up the fight." in part because radios were becoming outlawed. Also, the Nazis were jamming uh, radio signals. So there were a limited number of people up in northern France who could hear the BBC. But once they did hear it, they started talking to their neighbors once they could figure out where they stood. Did you hear what this guy said? Did you hear that he wants us to keep on the fight? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And so there were people who would step in and talk to their neighbors. There were people, there were young students like Jean who would make these leaflets that they would print. They were, you know, simple leaflets that just sort of talked about what General de Gaulle said, talked about what was going on, and they passed them around. You know, this was a movement. A lot of people knew that they wanted to do something, they may not have known where to begin. But they kind of improvised, and I think she likened it one time to like uh, raindrops hitting a window. They hit, 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 and they eventually gather together and gain momentum and become something bigger. And um, that's exactly how it worked for her with the resistance. Eventually, you know, these little acts led her to want to do, led her to want to do something bigger. And eventually what would happen was she decided that rather than go to London, where her uncle was, she would go to Paris um, to to see how she could contribute there.
1: As you describe it in the book, her getting into the resistance was especially risky, given that her... Her last name last made her a yes. target. I mean, the, the, yes. as you described, her her father's become public enemy number one in, in for, for her in, uncle. Her, me, sorry, her uncle has become public enemy number yeah. one in German-occupied France and, and for the Vichy as well. And yet, she's walking around with a name that that oftentimes people are are, are afraid even to mention, lest it cause the Gestapo yeah. to come down on them. Yeah, and
0: it was um, gosh, they were they were. Uh, teachers she had um, from, you know, her earliest days, you know, her earliest school days who would write her and say, you know, my heart just feels for you the shame that, or like, you know, the, this the, the you know, because of the name or the pain that this name must bring on your family. Um, and it's interesting because I heard a interview where she was asked, you know, is So the question was something like, do you enjoy being a De Gaulle or is it hard to be a De Gaulle? (laughs) And she said, um, you know, at times, you know, yes, it was difficult. But on the other hand, it was a source of great strength and comfort. So the whole family, by the time she gets to Paris to, to really dive in to resistance work, really dive in. Um, others in the family were getting involved in some way too. And, um, because the name de Gaulle was becoming kind of the symbol of resistance to Nazi oppression, you know, they were very proud. They, they, you know, uh, they were proud of Charles for going to London and getting people to rise up and fight back. Um, they were proud to help him fight back, so there were risks, um, but they were also willing to take those risks by having a name. By the same token, they also had false identity cards. She had number like a number of um, false names uh, to protect her you know if need be. Um, so there was, there was that aspect of it too. But, you know, they were, they, there was always that threat that um, you could walk into a trap if you were doing some sort of resistance Drop. There was always some threat that the Nazis could uh, knock on your door and want to search your apartment. Um, but they did what they did um, because they believed in it. And they knew that maybe that day would come. But, there were, you know, they would they would continue to keep up the fight.
1: In your book, you described the, the range uh, of, of resistance that existed. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, was, it was, I thought your explanation was particularly well made about how for for some, uh, you know, for some, the, the definition of resistance is those, uh, yes. those individuals who went and blew up train tracks and assassinated uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, German army officers. And, and, and yet for others, resistance was about these more private acts where they would simply uh, you know, tear down uh, flags or uh, turn them mm-hmm. back when German officers were, were going by. So, when you talk about resistance, I- I- exactly what role in the resistance did Jean Vieve play? Especially when she moved to Paris and, and and became more immersed in the movement.
0: What she started off doing in Paris, her aunt. She was living with her aunt in Paris, and her aunt was living alone in the house with. Five of her children ranged, if I recall correctly, it was from the age, from age five to twelve. So she five children plus um, a, a young woman who came down to live with her. Tears. This was a very busy household, and yet Madeline de Gaulle, her aunt, um, the reason why, pardon me, uh, the reason why Madeline was living alone with five children was that her husband. Uh, was working for a bank in Lyon. So she was back in Paris with the children. jean came to live with her uh, to go to the Sorbonne. And so here we have this busy household where the mother is also beginning to do resistance work for a group called the Musée de l'Homme network. jean through her aunt, gets involved with this network too. And starts with these things she delivers messages, she she delivers paper, she runs errands. And then it builds to something, you know, a little bit bigger. You know, one of the things that she did, people heard her uncle's voice on the radio or heard about him, but they had no idea what he even looked like. You know, he was kind of um, this mysterious figure that came across the airwaves. And that was kind of, a, you know, this mythic to hear. So there were people who said, what does he look like? What does he look like? <clears throat> so secretly she, she would work with people to get uh, pictures of him printed in bulk. You know, just, I mean, not in bulk, because you couldn't do it in bulk. He'd arouse Nazi suspicion. She'd get a bunch of pictures printed, like different batches. She would bring them back to the apartment. She would go to the little Bukhanese cellars along the Seine and buy cheap paperbacks. And she would stuff these paperbacks with pictures of her uncle um, and then ship them to people as if they were getting, you know, a paperback. But this was a way to get around Nazi censors um, and it was a way to spread, you know, what her uncle looked like. Um, so she would do things like that um, And that was very risky because you couldn't, you know, it it, it required a lot of organization and just being very methodical because not only could you not print these pictures in bulk, you couldn't send large amounts of paper back in bulk because that would arouse suspicion too. You couldn't send them from the same place. You'd have to send them from different places in town. And so that's kind of how things built. She would eventually, uh, take on, you know, she would take on more secret work where she would work a ton under aliases. She would build um, armed groups in the mountains. She would fund them, get them the papers they needed and any other resource they needed. Uh, and then she would connect with this other resistance group called Défense de la France. It was largely composed of uh, students at the Sorbonne. And it was known for this underground paper of the same name, de France de la France. And um, she connected with them and began writing articles for their paper about who her uncle was and what he stood for and why you should not be afraid of him being a British stooge because what he wanted to do was liberate France for the French. So all these things put her in danger um, and she did what she did, She could do to cover her tracks, protect her family, and protect her contacts along the way. But this is not easy work.
1: There's this uh, one episode you described that I, I thought was very fascinating, in particular, which is when she is being interrogated about uh, the, this picture she has of her father. And this is a time where increasingly that's her uncle. Or excuse me, her, her, her uncle. We're we're increasingly the, 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 they're they're cracking down on this, and she points she points mm-hmm. out she says he, he's my uncle, and, and so you know the the kind of thing that would you know get so many people uh, arrested for uh, for sedition. She's able to uh, actually use that name, which uh, you could sometimes get into trouble to her advantage in, in these in these but, uh, situations. And
0: the thing that was interesting about that. You know, his name, The call name was, you know, dirty word. Uh, she had, for you know, she had a picture, you know, pictures of him were forbidden. Um, but the argument that she was making to the Nazis who pulled her off the train and brought her away, they stopped the train and took her away for questioning. They held up the train for about, I think it was almost two hours. And they questioned her and questioned her. They said, this is your General de Gaulle's niece. This is a picture of him. This picture is forbidden. And the argument that she made to the Nazis was, that if you look at how many stripes he has in his uniform, he's actually not General de Gaulle. He's Colonel de Gaulle. So it should be fine. And they called uh, they called Gestapo headquarters in Paris to see what to do about this, because they had a picture of you know, Colonel de Gaulle, not General. What do we do? Should we release her? Blah, blah, blah. Eventually, they did, and they told her to go back to the train, now, it's amazing that she survived this situation, that um, she, she She was this bookish woman, and she was very, very petite, um, but she had tremendous moxie. Here are these Germans that pulled her out of her train, interrogated her for nearly two hours, and then said, you do fine, take your picture, go back to the train. And she stared him down and called him out, and she said, wait a second, it was really hard for me to get that train ticket. This is a packed train. I'm not going back there by myself. You're going to escort me back. So she <laughs> stares him down. <laughs> tells the, I mean, it's amazing that she didn't get her head shot off, but sure enough, they take her back to the train. They march her right back to his seat. And there's a great spectacle on the train because, why is this young girl being pulled off the train to be interrogated, and why are they escorting her back to her seat? And so they're asking questions, and all this kind of stuff. And as she's walking down the aisle on the train back to her seat, she says, "It's just because I'm General de niece. That's all."
1: my favorite part of the story is the fact that she was actually smuggling something in the meantime and that she was able to oh, yeah. do all of this while she's on a mission that, uh, in which had they found out about that, it wouldn't have been about uh, the picture of her uncle. It
0: would have been in a lot of trouble.
1: Exactly. And yet yeah. she's still, she still, not only does she sur- survive the, the, the issue with the picture, and, but, you know, this whole escort thing, She it, it, it's, it's just, it, exactly as you're describing that, that level of moxie that she had for it.
0: And, and it's, really you know to have the presence of mind to pull something like this off when you know you've left your seat and the papers that you were trying to make sure they not be not see were kind of left at your seat kind of tucked away and when they took her away you know for questioning the woman that was sitting next to her was trying to tell her, hey, miss, excuse me, you forgot something. And her husband had to kick her in the shin to get her to shut up because he knew he sensed something was going on. So to have the presence of mind to be collected enough to be escorted off the train, to keep your wits about you where you don't yield any information that could get someone in trouble, and then to, to stand up to the Nazis in sexual way that they escort you right back to your seat. Maybe some of that had... Maybe she got that sort of treatment because her last name was DeGaulle, but even so, you know, the fact that she could carry on... And, and they called her Little DeGaulle. You know, they carry on in such a way where she gave an order and they, they listened is, is really something. Mm-hmm.
1: Yet, ultimately... Uh, she is arrested. I wonder if you could tell us how it was that she came to be caught and what happened to her after
0: Mm -hmm. that. Well, as I mentioned, she was in a resistance group called Défense de la France. And by 1943, um, the Germans were doing everything they could to crack down on resistance movements. They got very aggressive about it. And they found a man uh, named Serge Margin who was a Sorbonne student and they paid him very well uh, to infiltrate Desfonds de la France, figure out who its members were, where their drop points were, and all that kind of stuff, and then provide the list of this information to the Gestapo. So he did exactly what he was told. After all, he was very well paid. And um, he presented the list to the Gestapo. And at the time, there there was a group of there was a, there was an auxiliary kind of group that was sort of affiliated. There was They were affiliated with the Gestapo. It was, these were, it was run by a French kind of a crooked French police inspector who had gone, you know, he had gone wrong. Uh, his name was inspector Pierre Bonny and he had recruited a lot of petty criminals and so forth to help him round up, um, uh, anyone that the the Germans wanted him to round up. You know, they, they kind of, they were a supplementary group to the Gestapo. They helped them, you know, round up people. They, they helped them interrogate people, torture people, this kind of thing. So they gave the list to uh, Inspector Pierre Bonny. B- Bonny knew that there was a bookshop on the left bank that the resistance, that Desfans de La France. They dropped that. And he was waiting there one day when Jean Vive de Gaulle came in the, the door to make a drop. He didn't know it was Jean Vive de Gaulle. He just knew it was a resistor who was going to make a drop at this time. She figured out pretty quickly that she fell into a trap. She tried to break loose, they caught her. And she had her false papers on her. And then he says, you know, I think the paper said her name was Genevieve Garnier. And Dr. Donnie looked at the papers and he said, is this your real name? And She said, actually, no. She, one of the things she thought is that if she were ever caught, she would tell people her real name. So they knew that she was a de Gaulle. And it was kind of a source of pride for her. You caught me, but I'm fighting for something. And, you know, it, she wanted them to know. And Bonnie had no idea that he had a de Gaulle until she told him that. And when she told him that, he realized, you know, this war is starting to get a little tight for the Germans. If things go wrong, and if Genevieve de Gaulle survives whatever may come, whatever fate may befall her next, I could be in a lot of trouble if General de Gaulle ever finds out that I nabbed his niece. All the same, that, that, that did not stop him from turning her over to the Gestapo, who then interrogated her, and then they put her in prison before deporting her to a concentration camp in Germany. And this would really, that experience would be something that's very, aside from everything that she did in the war, this experience would be such a formative one that would kind of shape her public engagement for the rest of her life. Um, and it's, it's amazing that she survived that.
1: You, you, the chapters you spend describing that experience are uh, the are the most harrowing in the book. What was yeah. that experience like uh, for her, and, and 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 what and what was unique about the camp uh, Ravensbrook where, where where she was mm-hmm. sent?
0: Well, Ravensbrück was the it, it was the only all female camp in the Nazi concentration camp system. It was located 50 miles north of Berlin in this, you know, kind of beautiful wooded area that has these crystal lakes and kind of these charming towns and so forth. During the global depression and because of, you know, World War I sanctions, this area became, you know, there were a lot of bankruptcies. It was there were a lot of people that were struggling even though it was such an idyllic place. And Heinrich Himmler decided, gosh, this charming place in the woods would be a great place for a concentration camp. And an all female concentration camp, no less. So he had other concentration camp prisoners build the location. And um, people knew that there was, you know, there was a town like on the other side of the lake from it. And they knew something was going on. Um, And they could watch it, but, you know, they, they knew uh, they were kind of hush-hush about what was going on until it became clear that this was a place that people were going to be detained. They may not have known everything that was going on there, but they knew, you know, those who actually, you know, were struggling enough in the town, some of them applied for jobs there. They became guards there um, and they were put up in a way where they had lovely lodging and all these perks. That was how it impacted the Germans. But for the many women who came through there, I mean, we are talking about just unthinkable things. There's a lot of literature about what happens in concentration camps. This is probably not too different, but they—they they were women that were you know, they were shipped in on trains That where they were packed, like, shoulder to shoulder in these trains with nothing but, like, a bucket to go to the bathroom in, little to no food. They were women giving birth in these things. The babies would die. People would be desperate. They had no idea where they were going. And then the cattle car doors would throw open in the middle of the night. They'd be greeted by... Um, you know just uh, you know Nazi camp workers who had angry dogs they would lunge at them they would order them off the train in german they didn't care whether they understood german or not they'd whip them they'd kick them they'd beat them and then they'd march them for miles like they'd march them through the town and then through a uh, forest to this camp Sometimes they were forced to stand, you know, in the freezing cold until they could be processed. Uh, When they were processed, you know, they were stripped naked and searched. It was pretty humiliating. Some of them had their heads shaved. Some of them didn't. Um, And then they were given flimsy clothing to wear. It's unbelievable to think that women that were put through with it, it was work camp. And they were worked very hard. And then they were forced. You know, they had very little food, and they were forced to sleep on a narrow cot with, like, sometimes one to two other people. Um, People would drop dead as they worked, Um, but there were things that happened there, you know. Javier de Gaulle and her, you know, the women that she met, they were so determined to survive this, to tell the world what was going on here, to talk about the humiliation. And the torture and the pain, you know, even the littlest gestures kept them going. You know, if they saw someone was struggling, they'd give them, you know, they, they were giving a morsel salt bread. If they saw someone was struggling, they'd hand it to their friends and say, you need this more than I do today. And that, that solidarity, and really,
1: uh, sorry, but that solidarity yeah. really stood out in the book because I, I was thinking not just about those episodes where they were doing things to keep people alive, but the things they were doing to keep their spirits alive. About how they yes. would sometimes make uh, a little sort of ersatz, uh birthday cakes and and and, and Christmas mm-hmm. celebrations. It wasn't just about the 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 body. It was it was about you know keeping that that Denizing. hope going. Yes, exactly.
0: You know there were there were some very there were all there were all kinds of different women there uh, with the you know there were you know there were countesses there 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 were there was an anthropologist there there were and her mother was an art historian they would do they would do little religious services on the fly they would you know give history lectures they would sing together anything they could to keep themselves from really losing their minds and their souls, they would do. I mean, imagine the circumstances, though, to be so committed. It had to take everything you had at that point to do, you know, to make these little books and do anything you could just to keep your mind collected and sane, um, because they saw horrible things. And to think of something beautiful, I mean, it had to be a struggle.
1: Did Geneviève's status as the niece of Charles de Gaulle uh, lead to any sort of different treatment, either uh, better or worse treatment, uh,
0: during her (coughs) time at Ravensbrück? Uh, At first, because Ravensbrück by then was pretty, it was well over capacity and it was very disorganized. It was chaotic. So she was booked and they may not have paid too much attention to who she was. She just became a number. Eventually, people figured out who she was. And during the you know, some prisoners figured out who she was first. But, you know, she would, she would be whipped and kicked and beaten like the rest of them. She was starved like the rest of them. And she got very, very ill. And then eventually, uh, Heinrich Himmler found out that Genevieve de Gaulle, the niece of the general, was at Ravensbrück. And when he heard this, you know, he, he said, you know, we might want to, Think about how we're treating her. And also, we might want to think about using her as a pawn in a prisoner exchange that might be beneficial to us. So, they took her out of the more ramshackle barracks. Uh, they let her wear marginally better clothing and they put her in a slightly nicer barrack for a while. Um, They give her medicine and so forth. And eventually they put her in solitary confinement, not to torture her, although she could not trust the Nazis at that time, but just to give her, you know, to keep her away and and to keep her kind of off to the side just in case, you know, General de Gaulle went in on this prisoner exchange, which he did not. So it improved slightly. But, I mean, her treatment improved, but, I mean, that's relative at a concentration camp.
1: As the war came to an end, though, as you described, she becomes increasingly valuable to certain people in the SS, because now as they end is in sight, they start to think about how maybe if they could help her out in a way, because she doesn't end the war in Robbins Brook. As you described, she is, no. she, she is she's uh, undergoes this, this interesting shift away to the point where she's able to uh, uh, be uh, uh, given over to her father
0: she had a release negotiated um, and she and an, and an American prisoner, married a Frenchman. They were escorted out of the camp one night and they were supposed to be taken to like another place where recently released prisoners could go and recuperate it and then um, be reunited with their families or the appropriate government officials. And so the journey, if you imagine what they had been through in the camp, and that they're, I think she shrunk down to like 75 pounds or something. And they're being marched through the snow and the wind and through aerial bombardments. And You know, train stations would be shut down, tracks would be blown up, and then they'd have to walk for like however many miles to the next town. You know, the price of freedom, the, the fact that they got their freedom and they're being escorted to their next step, this was no... The fact that they even survived that part of the journey was miraculous. Um, but eventually, they're brought to their destination just before freedom. Um, they are allowed to recuperate. And eventually, Geneviève is taken by car, to her father um, in Geneva, where he was consul general there. For, for, and they reunited. And as I mentioned, Xavier de Gaulle, he was a very sensitive man. When his daughter was brought to him in that state, you know, he, he didn't do anything but cry. He just held her and cried. And it was a very emotional homecoming uh, for her and for him. But, you know, she was made of this sort of stuff. I said that you know, she, was, she was the woman who looked around her at the world, and she saw, if she saw a problem that needed to be addressed, she would figure out what needed to be done and do it. So there she is in frail health, and what she knew was when my comrades at Robinsbrook and other camps are released, they've got terrible health problems. Um, many of them will go home to France, they may have lost their husbands, their families, their homes. Many of them, you know, there are probably some of them that don't even work. And so when they get back to France, their situation is going to be dire. You know, they've just been through the war and this hell of the camp. And then they're going to go back to France. And it, it won't necessarily be better for them. So what she began to do... Was give these speeches in Switzerland. These paid speeches in Switzerland to raise money to, to first to raise awareness of what had happened in this camp, and to talk about the problems that these women would face once they got home. Um, these speeches raised money. She used the money to set up these rest homes to help you know some women get back to health. You know through the you know through the generosity of these Swiss patrons. She would meet another woman uh, who was also a deportee and they would band together to make a much larger group with a much larger mission of helping these women get back on their feet in a variety of ways. I mean, it, it, outside of the medical care that it offered, it offered um, job training. It had, um, had have these weekly teas. Because when, when they moved back to France, they felt like a lot of people didn't really understand what they had been through. And what's more, they didn't want to hear about what they had been through because the war was over and it was time to move on. But meanwhile, Jean-Yves de Gaulle and her ilk, they were haunted by this. They needed to sit down once a week and talk to people who truly spoke their language and who had understood what they had been through. So they would organize these teas where they could sit down and talk. And then they would have like cultural uh, get-togethers after that, just to, to kind of give it an elevated character to get their minds off of, you know, what haunted them at night. So This was a very large organization that lasted, gosh, around 2002, right after she died. And it was very committed to putting these women back on their feet, but also then, Making a contribution to the life of the people in France and the memory of what happened during the war. It was a fascinating work at these women.
1: It, it was, and not just that, but her her work, uh, her other work after the war. It really seems that she's uh, that it, her the rest of her life becomes about this doing good works it, 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 in some ways to. Uh, to, to try to restore, you know, to bring humanity back to the world after after what the, the, the depths that she had seen during the war itself.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think that humanity was always part of her heart, even prior to the war. But I think the war and the things that she had witnessed during the war and in her um, incarceration at Robins they really... Um it these things she's, it made this humanity so much deeper, and this appreciation for life so much I mean I think that a lot of us really appreciate life, but if you've been in a situation like this, that appreciation deepens <laughs> um and uh you know you understand how short life is uh she she I'll just as an aside, she meant the man who was also a resistor, they fell in love, and rather than wait for him to propose to her, she proposed to him, because she was not going to wait, because who knew, who knew what tomorrow would bring? So she proposed to him, and he made her wait three days before he said yes. You know, so many of these women were told that they couldn't have children right after the war, that they should wait, but you know what, who knew what tomorrow would bring? They started their families, they began to rebuild even if it wasn't easy. By 1958, a lot of these women got their lives back, you know, their health back and their lives, well, you know, pretty stable. But jean de Gaulle would meet this, she would be introduced to this pastor, Father Joseph Rzydsky, who wanted her to come into the slums around Paris and see what people were living like and see what they were enduring. She, at the point, at that point in time, was also a member of her uncle's government. It was a brand new ministry of culture. And she was, she and her husband were working for Andre Malraux in that. So she thought she was a little spread thin. She was a mother of four. She was working, you know, with this post-war group for women. And she was involved with her uncle's government. But she felt called to at least, you know, hear this preacher out to see what he had to say. So she went... Uh, into the slum outside of Paris. She had no idea that people lived in slums outside of Paris. And what she saw there, the filth, the desperation, this kind of deadened, dehumanized look in people's eyes, what she saw there immediately brought her back to what she remembered about Ravensburg. It was For her, it was almost the same thing. These people had nothing. Um, they were clinging to life and they were desperate just outside the gates of one of the greatest cities in the world. And that stayed with her. She didn't know, it was almost like the resistance in a sense. She didn't know precisely what she would do or if she would do something immediately. But it didn't take long before she started reconnecting with this pastor, or this preacher, and helping him bring attention to what was happening there um, with media. She would go and talk to public officials about it. She would become an advocate and she helped, she helped build this organization, uh, that's now global, um, called ATD, or ATD Cartmond. And, um, they're a global anti-poverty organization that helps. I mean, a lot of the volunteers go into these communities. They live among the poor. Uh, they find they live so closely with them they understand what their unique problems are, and then they engage them to help them find ways of fixing these problems in a way that eventually becomes public policy and so she was very instrumental about raising this group. you know she put her name and her credibility on the line to help these people in this fledgling group that soon became big and she led she would leave her post in the Ministry of Culture to devote the rest of her life to helping the poor. And, you know, really, she was a tremendous person with this rich, full life. She was a survivor, um, and she was also this very graceful person who didn't throw her name around to get benefits for herself, but she used her name to help others. It was always to open the door for other people more than anything else. And she was really a special
1: soul. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Well, I just submitted a proposal for what I hope will be my next book. And I don't want to give too many details away, but its it involves true crime, and there is a... It intersects with. uh, I got really curious about it after reading about Pierre Bonny and this book. I kind of wound my way backwards about ten or fifteen years to find the subject for what I hope will be my next book. It involves true crime, glamour, the nineteen thirties.
1: Sounds (laughs) intriguing. Lies.
0: Yes. What else could you ask for?
1: Well, thank you very much for taking some time. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Well, good luck with with the proposal. (laughs) Thank you. and, And Paige, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Oh, no problem at all. Thank you. You have a wonderful day, too. Thank you for having me.